You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mountain called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now, this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akildama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who had accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we are thankful for your word. Help us now, we pray, to understand it, to be transformed by it. Help us to fix our eyes on Christ. Father, make us new and renew us by your spirit. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good evening, everyone. My name is Nathan. If I haven't met you... Uh, what a weekend. All that transition that I mentioned last Sunday is here. Uh, it feels amazing outside. Uh, I watched quite a bit of football and soccer and Dallas Stars playoff hockey last night. It's been a, it's good times. Uh, I was actually able to be at Desert Springs Church this morning uh, preaching for them. Uh, I gave them your greetings, whether you asked for it or not. Uh, and they are doing like a half of an alphabet thing like half the alphabet can come this Sunday, and then half of the last names can come next Sunday. Uh, so it was good to see at least half of their folks, and I, uh, they, several of them asked me to say hello to many of you as well. So hello from Desert Springs. Uh, and then tonight, uh, we have our very first meeting of 39 of you who will be joining us with our first meeting of the Ministry Training Institute. Lots of fun and great things happening right now. And last week, uh, as many of you were transitioning from summer to fall out and about on Labor Day, uh, we transitioned right into the book of Acts. 
which as we thought about is a pretty serious landmark of transition in the kingdom of God. Jesus, we saw, ascended to heaven. He ascended as our, as our high priest and entered into the heavenly temple and received the throne as our king. And then we saw at the end of that, uh, two angelic beings like snapped these like drooling, jaw-dropped apostles uh, out of their stupor and into action, telling them to get to work. And so it feels like if you're, if you're reading Acts for the first time, like, like the, the, the plunger spring on the pinball machine is, has been pulled back and it's about to be let go. And like the kingdom of God is about to explode out of what we just saw last week. And then you read the rest of chapter one that we just heard Chris read and it feels a bit of a letdown. Like they go back to Jerusalem seemingly to twiddle their thumbs for about 10 days. They, they shoot some dice and uh, to find their 12th apostle, and it's kind of weird, right? But it, it is actually really important stuff. The rest of chapter one is both really important for the rest of Acts and really important for the rest of our lives. In it, we're going to see that God is accomplishing his sovereign purposes even when we aren't necessarily seeing the results. In it, we're going to see that God advances, before God advances his kingdom, he will prepare his people. So we're going to track through verses 12 through 26 tonight in three sections under uh, the three major scenes that we have heard read this evening. First of all, the preparation for harvest, the height of betrayal, and the renewal of ministry. First of all, the, the preparation for harvest. In verse 12, we read, Then they returned to Jerusalem for the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. So they have returned from, to Jerusalem proper from Olivet, the, the Mount of Olives, as you sometimes hear it, the same place where Jesus had prayed on the night that he was betrayed, where he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. This is where the Garden of Gethsemane is, the Mount of Olives. And, and Luke tells us that it's a Sabbath day journey away, meaning later Jewish tradition restricted the amount of travel that you could do on the Sabbath to about two-thirds of a mile. So the Mount of Olives is less than two-thirds of a mile away from Jerusalem proper. And so they're walking back to the city, a short walk. And they enter what Luke calls the upper room. He says, not a upper room, but the upper room. This could be nothing, but many assume that this is the same upper room where a month prior or so, Jesus shared the Passover meal with these same disciples, instituting uh, the Lord's Supper. So there's a bit of narrative symmetry from Luke to Acts, that in Luke 22, they leave this upper room to go up to the Mount of Olives. And here in Acts 1, they return from the Mount of Olives to this upper room. And Luke tells us who's there. There are the 11 remaining apostles. He says the women. We don't know which ones in addition to Mary, the mother of Jesus, but we can assume at least perhaps Mary Magdalene, perhaps Martha, and a third Mary, her sister Mary. Jesus' brothers are also present with what we find out in verse 15, 120 other disciples of Jesus. And who knows who all of these folks are? Undoubtedly some or perhaps all of the 72 that Jesus sent out in pairs in Luke 10. Perhaps others like Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea. Perhaps the, the guys on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. Maybe the wealthy owner of this house. It wouldn't be uh, normal for a house to have a room like this that could hold 120 people, but not completely impossible. But there's actually something comforting, as we'll think more about in a minute, about the anonymity of these faithful disciples of Jesus, those who weren't part of the 12. 
weren't some of the women who were identified by name, just those who had been following Jesus and were now waiting in Jerusalem in obedience. Remember what we often think about, that in a hundred years, just a hundred years from now, likely no one on this planet will remember your name. No one. And that's actually not a depressing thing. It's actually quite a freeing reality that you and I are really not as important as we think we are. That God works and moves through people that he knows intimately, but that the world doesn't think very much of. Because it doesn't care about hardly at all. And so even the apostles, again, as we'll think more about in a minute, uh, but for even eight of them that are in this list right here, eight of them in this list that we just read, this is the last time that we ever hear of them. They just eventually go out from this upper room in anonymous but impactful faithfulness. Doing great things for God isn't necessarily a, a bad motive, but the overwhelming majority of us will do so in obscurity, and that's a good thing. And if living our lives in obscurity is bothersome, then maybe the, the name or building our own notoriety of ourselves and not God is actually the thing that we were after all along. And so the anonymity of these 120 faithful disciples is actually a very comforting and encouraging thing for us. But for the time being, Jesus tells them, we saw last week in verse 5, to wait in Jerusalem, to wait until the Father sends the Spirit, which we'll see next week in Acts 2. Because just think about this, though. Last week, we thought about how much Jesus himself could have done with those 40 days that he spent with the apostles. Think about what they might be thinking, though, as they are told to wait, as they are told to go back to Jerusalem and wait. Like the sermon that we're going to see Peter end up preaching at the end of Acts 2. Like, why should we be just sitting here inside this room? Why shouldn't we just go out to the town square right now and preach it now? Shouldn't we be going out on mission right now? Or maybe it isn't their like evangelistic and missional zeal that they're having to hold back as they're waiting in obedience to Christ. But maybe the, the waiting is difficult because they have other concerns. They had families, they had jobs, they had fish to catch, they had households to manage, they had money to be earned, and we're just supposed to sit here? Inside this room? And for what? Why and how long? As one commentator puts it, the situations in which we learn most about obedience are those in which we cannot see why we are called to do what we are doing. If we can give a reason for what we are doing, then we are not necessarily learning obedience, at least not simple obedience. What we are really doing is trusting in our, our ability to reason things out. We are doing what we are doing because we think it is the best thing to do. There is nothing wrong with thinking things out, of course, but it is quite another thing to learn obedience when the prescribed course does not seem the best option. I've even thought through this principle with several of you this week of obedience and submission to our governing authorities. I know the governor is not Jesus in the same way that the governor has asked us to continue to mask and to not sing, in the same way that, certainly not the same way that Jesus is asking the disciples to stay here in Jerusalem, but I think it's really easy for us to say that principally we agree with Romans 13 or 1 Peter 2 in honoring and submitting to authority when we actually agree with the things that they are asking us to do. 
Until then, we don't agree. And then that principle gets really easily tossed out the window. Like, that's not reasonable. That's not a reasonable request that you've asked of us. I don't like that, so here are all the reasons why I shouldn't obey. Well, that just shows that we were probably never really down with submitting to or honoring governing authorities in the first place. We were just okay with just the principle of it, but mostly just when we were in agreement with what they were asking. But we can just as easily operate in the same kind of obedience to the Lord as well. Yes, principally, I think and agree with the idea and the principle that all Christians should obey Christ. We should walk in obedience, but now put this situation that you're asking me, Lord Jesus, in the context of my actual, real, lived life. Here's why my pride is actually justifiable in this situation. Here's why it makes sense that I often get angry or lose my cool in these situations. Here's why, even moment by moment, here's why drunkenness or pornography or sexual sin actually isn't that big of a deal. I actually kind of don't agree with what you're asking of me in this moment, and so I will not walk in obedience. Now certainly, the longer that we walk in obedience, the more God actually begins to change and align our desires to his, but sometimes for his own purposes and our own long-term joy, obedience can feel unreasonable. It can sometimes feel like the proscribed course is actually not the best option. So these are the moments where we must ask ourselves, is Jesus really my king and am I really his subject. If not, will I now obey even when I don't feel like it? But of course, waiting is the best option. They don't see it, but it is the best option for these 120 disciples. The Spirit will come for their joy and for the accomplishing of God's purposes. And in the meantime, we actually don't find them twiddling their thumbs or playing cards. What do we find them doing? devoting themselves to prayer. They know that the big moment, movements of the kingdom are coming. Jesus told them, we saw last week, he told them in, that the kingdom would advance to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And it appears that they are preparing toward that end. They are in fervent preparatory prayer. They are devoting themselves themselves to prayer, probably individually, corporately, undoubtedly. And can I challenge us here? Even though, maybe uh, surprisingly even, we're seeing new visitors join us. Some of you that I've met for the first time this evening. There's a growing sign-up list in our new members class that will start soon. And praise the Lord for that. I don't quite understand how all this is happening still, but it's still feels like a continued season where the advancement of the gospel kind of feels like it's on hold. Like we're in a temporary holding pattern of just weirdness, of disconnectedness. We can't even strike up the same kind of just casual conversations around the coffee shops because no one's really in the coffee shops. Now, that's not all true, of course. All of us have relationships and opportunities to be moving towards people with the gospel, to share the gospel. But many of these normal life interactions and opportunities are just not there these days. But rather than treating these days, treating these weeks or months as a time of gospel vacation, perhaps we might actually treat this time as a time of gospel preparation. 
of devoted prayer, of time of devoted Bible reading or book reading or discussion with others about the things of God. Praise the Lord, 39 of you seem to be similarly thinking in the same way about devoting time towards reading and discussing the things of God and of his church so that the weirdness and the slowness of 2020 doesn't continue into a weird and slow and even complacent 2021. But that the the pinball plunger spring is actually being pulled back and not just sitting there stationary, but is actually being pulled back in the life of our church, that it might do something. Now, there's a lot more that we'll be able to consider and pray toward practically as we keep moving through Acts, but one practical suggestion for us all that we might begin to uh, recommit to or renew our efforts in is to devote ourselves in prayer toward praying for one person. Just praying for one person that needs to hear and respond to the gospel. Sometimes praying for the spiritual well-being of our entire nation or the spiritual well-being of the entire world can sometimes feel overwhelmingly daunting. So just perhaps in this time, pray for one person. If every single member of our church saw one person in the next 12 months come to Christ, 180 people in our city would move from death to life. And that is world-altering stuff. Let's commit ourselves to this. Devote ourselves to prayer, toward preparation, not just putting our feet up. Okay, so these 120 disciples are in preparation for the harvest. Secondly now, let's consider the height of betrayal. At some point in these days of waiting, in the room, in this upper room, Peter stands up and addresses these 120 folks. And he says in verse 16, he says, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us, and, he w- and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now Peter comes right out into the open. He brings up the name of likely one of the closest friends of many people in this room. Now just imagine the guy that you had been walking side by side with. You had had conversations next to him under the stars as you were falling asleep for the past three years. You had dreams of what living alongside one another might look like in the kingdom of God. And then he betrays the king. One of your closest friends. And if that weren't bad enough, the betrayal, the questioning, the confusion, of all of that surrounding it, then your friend commits suicide in the aftermath. Death, violence, loss upon compounding loss. Now, I tread into these waters very cautiously because I know that suicide is a very heart-wrenchingly all-too-close reality for many of you in this room. Hopefully, you were able to read ahead a few times this week, and this isn't catching you completely unaware. But if you need to clench your teeth the next few minutes, or perhaps even step out for a couple of minutes, we will understand and we will be reminded to pray for you and that the grief never just does leave. But while true in many cultures, certainly in a first century Mediterranean culture, betrayal and suicide were two of the most shameful things 
that someone could do. One of the most, two of the most shameful things imaginable. And yet, while we'll spend more time on this in Peter's preaching in chapters 2 and 4, Peter here says that all of this was that the scriptures might be fulfilled. According to the scriptures, according to the plan of God, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Now again, we'll think more about this and how to think through the sovereign plan of God and of human sin and how all of this fits together in chapters 2 and 4. But for now, this disarms a bit. That the shame is still part of God's rescue plan for the world, at least in this scenario and in the actions of their friend Judas. Before we look at the two psalms that Peter has in mind, you'll notice our English translators usually put verses 18 and 19 in parentheses, indicating that they think that this is an aside that Luke is writing. This isn't something that Peter is speaking, but that Luke, as he's telling us what Peter said to these 120 disciples, now Luke gives us a parenthetical statement, an aside. And I think that's right. Luke says in parentheses, now this man acquired, this man Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Ekeldama, that is, field of blood. Now what in the world? This isn't just a police report. As we'll see, the 12 apostles were acting as new representatives of a new and fulfilled Israel, the the 12 tribes of Israel who had received and inherited allotments of land in the days of Joshua. Rather than receiving what God would give by grace, though, Judas took by impatience and by force. He bought his own land with the money of his betrayal, and then he killed himself on this property with bursting bowels. Now, I might not have spent much time on this had I preached through Acts a year ago, uh, but this description that Luke gives us of bowels bursting open has become a fairly hot-button issue in the past 12 months or so, in the past year, uh, when a well-known critic of the Bible, I think, like thinking that he was the very first person in the history of the church in the last 2,000 years, made the observation that Matthew tells us that Judas hung himself while Luke has Judas's bowels bursting open. And like, see, see how much conflict there is in the Bible? If the gospel writers can't even get their police reports to agree with one another, then how much of the rest of their history is actually unreliable as well? But while the gospel writers are giving us history, they are giving us theological history as well. Matthew, who throughout his gospel account is completely in your face about Jesus being a new and greater David, the fulfillment of David's throne and of his kingdom. And if that's the case, then is there another character in the Bible that you quickly might think of dying while hanging or being suspended in the air? Is there another character that might come to your mind if you are steeped in the Jewish Old Testament scriptures? Absalom. David's son. The king is betrayed by those closest to him, and David flees Jerusalem, ascending to the Mount of Olives on his departure out of Jerusalem, weeping as he goes, we read in 2 Samuel 15. Absalom, David's betraying son, meets a gory end hung in a tree, 
And as one Old Testament scholar says, Absalom can thus be said to have died a Judas-like death. Or, more precisely, Judas can be said to have died an Absalom-like death. Hence, just as Samuel's narrative leaves Absalom isolated, alone, and hung from a tree by his own self-ambition, so too Matthew's does with Judas. Luke, though, perhaps highlighting the upside-downness of the kingdom of Christ throughout his gospel, of the poor and the vulnerable actually becoming conquerors through Christ, seems to be more playing up the irony of Judas's death. Is there a different Old Testament story that Luke seems to want to draw attention to, tries to want to drum up imagery from in our minds as we read? in which someone sheds innocent blood in order to dishonestly buy a plot of land, only to later have his own corpse thrown down onto the land, staining the soil with his own blood. Anybody? This isn't just like Old Testament survey class here. We're going somewhere. Is there another story that might come to your mind? Well, in 1 Kings 21 and in 2 Kings 9, when King Ahab steals Naboth's vineyard, Naboth is a faithful witness to God. He is slandered by false witnesses at a hurriedly put-together sham trial, and then he is led outside the city and put to death. Judas, as Luke is putting theological dots together, is attempting to lead Israel's leaders into false worship. But this always ends the same, Luke seems to be wanting us to come to this conclusion of. It always ends the same, this kind of betrayal, this kind of deceit. Now, this isn't just a Old Testament, New Testament, where's Waldo? Like, see, see what stories you can figure out what sound alike or something. Nor is it to say that Matthew and Luke are not both right in their police reports that are going on. Who's to say that after days, someone cut Judas's body down and it did not end well, but ended in a bloody mess. But all of this is treating the so-called tensions that we might find in the Bible very seriously. Is there something more deeply theological going on here? Is there something that the gospel writers are trying to draw our attention to and put the whole scope and sequence, the whole progression and unveiling and revelation of God's plan together for us? Which then gets us to verse 20, where Peter says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And... Let another take his office. If you think that I've been playing fast and loose with the Old Testament, playing Where's Waldo? Like, you ought to see what Peter's doing here. He is quoting from Psalm 69, and he's quoting from Psalm 109, and in context, it's pretty clear that neither of those psalms really have anything to do with Judas. And yet, Peter is saying that it might be fulfilled, that Judas fulfilled Psalm 69 and 109. But this is perhaps the point of all of this, with Absalom and with David, with Ahab and with Naboth and with Judas and with Jesus. In both Psalms that Peter quotes, David is surrounded, David is betrayed, David is suffering. And as one commentator says, if the two verses that Peter here quotes, if the two verses are applied to oppressors of the righteous generally, then how much more ought they apply to Judas, the betrayer of the righteous one? All of the hints and shadows of the Old Testament story are building and gaining momentum 
All of these pre-whispers of righteousness in the Old Testament find their righteousness in Christ, find their fulfillment in the righteous one. And the building wave of rebellion against the God of covenant love then crashes with Judas when humanity kills its God. Even while the rest of the disciples run and flee and even deny Jesus on the night of his betrayal and the night of his trial and of his crucifixion, Judas is the fulfillment, the human height of betrayal and of rebellion and of sin. Matthew tells us that Judas apparently felt bad about it later, but not to the point of humble repentance. He perhaps was feeling the consequences of his sin, but not the affront to God himself. Drawing from Ray Ortland, I love how Matt encouraged us up here last week that none of us should ever deceive ourselves in arrogance, that our sin is somehow too great or too serious for God himself to overcome in love and in grace. God's grace greater than all our sin. Greater, stronger, mightier, more wonderful than all our sin. And no one, not even betrayal of the king himself, is beyond God's love in Christ. This is what John is certainly portraying for us in Jesus' move in mercy and of grace and of forgiveness to Peter affirming him and welcoming him, forgiving him three times in the way that Peter had denied Christ three times. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, you, whoever, you and me, might believe and should not perish but have everlasting life. This is good news of the gospel. And so Peter is explaining all these things. That the scriptures are being fulfilled right before their eyes. And it's, there's more to do though. He keeps going. Now lastly, it's time to roll some dice. The renewal of ministry. Peter says that it is important that they replace Judas. The 12 apostles are appointed representatives of the new covenant community of God. Jacob's 12 sons in Israel's past national existence, their descendants, their land, all of it is fulfilled and is renewed in these uneducated and relatively powerless 12 men that Jesus institutes a new covenant in and through. It is through their ministry, it is through their spiritual lineage that their descendants of faith will grow, will multiply, and then become more numerous than the very stars in the sky. And so it's both symbolically and theologically important to appoint a twelfth, to renew this new covenant people of God. Now, when we read this story, we want to like immediately jump to the Yahtzee part, where they're like throwing the dice to figure out what's going on. But they've, before they throw the dice, they've done some important legwork here. Let's not jump over that. They have like a weeding out list of criteria first. This new apostle who is to be chosen must have accompanied them from the very beginning, from Jesus's baptism all the way to his ascension. Presumably, there are perhaps even more than the two that they end up presenting that have been with Jesus all of these years. 
But again, this is encouraging in the anonymity of faithfulness. And yet, Matthias, the guy that is picked, we actually never hear from him again, just like many of the rest of the apostles. We certainly don't hear from Joseph called Barsabbas again, the one who was not chosen. Matthias, though, does not become important. Matthias does not become significant or useful once he is actually chosen. He has been following Jesus for years, and presumably Joseph uh, has been and will too. Luke doesn't tell us that Joseph is frustrated or upset. When the dice don't fall on his name, he like flips the table over and leaves in a huff. After all of these years of obedience, this is how I get repaid? Seriously? I've been following him just the same as Matthias, and you don't recognize me? What do I have to do here to get some credit, to get some recognition? No, both of them and the rest of the community are trusting in God's sovereign care. Now, we would have likely gone through a very serious interview process. Now, Matthias, can you give us a couple of examples of um, a time that you overcame some adversity in the workplace? Or, uh, Joseph, can you give me a couple of your greatest strengths and weaknesses that we might evaluate? We would have probably checked their Enneagram profile. We would have prayed and fasted, perhaps even, in a very spiritual sense, for like 40 days or something, to help us make this decision. But the 11 or the 120 or whoever it is that's making this decision, they just roll some dice. Now, there are a bunch of ways that they might have gone about this. Uh, Maybe perhaps they they wrote each of their names on a shard of pottery, and they put it in another pot, and then they like shook one out, and whoever's uh, name fell out, that was the guy. Or they might have marked one piece of something, like they wrote on a couple of pieces of pottery, they wrote on one of them, our new apostle. And then Uh, They asked Matthias to reach in and grab one out. And if he picked that one out, then he's the guy. Or seriously, they might have just flipped a coin. Literally. We know of uh, first century people in the Mediterranean world casting lots in this way. Coinage was a very uh, prevalent thing in all cultures in the Roman Empire. And they seriously might have just flipped a coin. (laughs) This was a way of decision making that we see often in the Old Testament. Especially since... Israelites would have leaned on the belief of Proverbs 16.33 that the the lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. That you cannot roll dice at the casino for big money, or you cannot roll dice on your kitchen table and monopoly for fake money without God's sovereign and guiding hand. Again, we'll talk more about God's sovereignty in Acts 2 and 4, but it seems to be the overwhelming consensus of Scripture that there is not one rogue molecule in the universe. There is nothing, however small, even the roll of a dice, outside of the authority, the direction, the power, and the care of God. Now, the question then, if we believe that to be true, is is this story prescriptive prescriptive for us? Is this how we should make our decisions? Should we maybe have a weeding out process to get our decisions down to two and then just roll some dice for it? Flip a coin. On the one hand, the sovereignty of God and all this is freeing since it sure doesn't seem likely that either one of these guys wouldn't have been a great choice. And since that's true, we actually 
perhaps don't have to stress out too much with our decisions. Like I've told you before that I actually could have ended up going to college at Texas A&M. I went to the University of Texas. Now, the thought of going to Texas A&M is abhorrent to me. Uh, if you know any Aggies, there's a few of you that are probably at home. Are there any Aggies here? Any whoopers out there? All right. Uh, Texas A&M uh, culture is obnoxious. It is uh, cultic and weird. And had I gone to school there, I would have been all in. But had I gone to school there, I probably would not have met Marcy. I might not have pursued vocational ministry. And since my college roommate in Austin was my mutual friend connection to Desert Springs, I'm nearly entirely confident that had I not gone to the University of Texas, I would have never lived in Albuquerque and I would have never known any of you. So I can without a doubt say that in hindsight, it was God's will that I went to the University of Texas in Austin. And this is what theologians call God's will of decree. It's what God actually decreed that would happen. It is what happened, so it was God's will that it happened. But I do not think that I would have been disobediently outside of God's will had I actually gone to Texas A&M. It was a morally neutral decision. Well, kind of. Uh, but uh, the question then becomes, should we actually then narrow our decision-making to one or two or three possibilities and then just flip a coin for it? Now, admittedly, this is an argument from silence, but here's the thing. We never see anyone else do this again in the rest of the New Testament. No lots are ever cast again. And then, perhaps importantly, what is the very next scene and development in the book of Acts? Well, it's Acts 2, with the coming of the Spirit. God gives his people the power, the ability, the mind to make decisions. Not by the power of God from without, from outside, in like rolling dice, but from the power of God from within, from inside. Now, if you want to think more about this, I've, I've, I've held up a book before, and we have uh, even done a book club on it a couple of years ago, but Kevin DeYoung's short little book, Just Do Something, is just about the best entry point resource that I know of in thinking about decision-making and the will of God. But drawing from all of this, Augustine says about decision-making, now admittedly, this is not the Bible, uh, but I think it's good and right what Augustine says. He says, love God and do whatever you please. For the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. The one who is trained in love for God can actually now just live a life of decision-making that is cultivated by God's Spirit, that is leaning on a conscience cultivated by the Spirit, and then can just go about and live his or her life. But in all of this, in having his people wait in having them devote themselves to prayer, in depending upon God in this replacement apostle, all of this is fulfilling the scriptures. All of this, perhaps, we'll think more about this as we go, then doesn't necessarily become a prescriptive way for us to try to get our church to like really emulate this first generation, first century church. There's some of that, and we definitely want to become like this church in many ways. But these first days are not just prescriptive for us. They are, the wave is crashing. 
on the fulfillment of all of God's story coming to a head in the coming of Christ and his death and resurrection in the, in the establishment of his body, the church. So we have much more to think about. But before God advances his kingdom, he must prepare his people. And he is doing that here as they sit, as they wait, as they talk with one another. Think about all of these conversations that these 120 must have had together. And think about all of the singing and the prayer that they would have accomplished together, even if they weren't seeing the results immediately before them. God is preparing his people. He is accomplishing his purposes. He is fulfilling time and history and scripture, and he is pulling back the pinball plunger spring, and it is ready to explode next week in Acts 2 coming of the Spirit at Pentecost and the arrival of a mighty rushing wind with fire. And it is great. So I would encourage you this week to read Acts 2 several times. We're not going to read, we're not going to get to the whole chapter next week. Uh, We'll save Peter's sermon for the following week. But next week is great. Next week is great. But this week wasn't just filler. <laughs> there is God is doing unbelievable things in and through his people as he prepares them for next week. Let's pray for our week this week. Our Father, we are thankful that you have not just left us on our own to try to figure things out on our own, but that you are sovereign over all things, that you are building a kingdom as you build your church. We pray that we might become more and more dependent upon your spirit as we walk by your spirit. We pray that you would cultivate our consciences. We pray that you would cultivate greater humility as we learn to obey authority as unto the Lord. God, help us to be content. Help us to find joy. Help us to follow you when we don't want to. Help us to devote ourselves to prayer. Help us to Pray for one person that the life that you might bring in and through this body of believers might be something that 12 months from now we might look back on and marvel at. God, we pray that you might make your name great through us, anonymous, obscure people that the world does not think much of but that you know intimately. Help us to care for one another, pray for one another, and move towards the unbelieving world together. And we pray for all these things in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.